Enough of that. We're in Matthew 25. If you'd open your Bibles there or navigate on your device, Matthew 25. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. The topic we're going to see, at his second coming, Jesus will separate all non-believers for eternal punishment. The title of our message, Separation Anxiety. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we get into your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would, in a sense, get into us with it and be ministering to us. It's largely about future prophecy. There's a few applications for us as well, but you can talk to us directly from it in our hearts because it's alive and it's powerful, and that's what I'm asking for. Speak to me as I teach. Speak to your believers, uh, your beloved ones, Lord, as they're taught. If there's anyone here that's not a Christian, I pray that your spirit would be convicting them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. And that in every way possible, Lord, we would hear your voice, that we would hear what the Spirit says to us individually and to us as a church. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It's called jargon. It's the vocabulary that is peculiar to a particular profession or trade or group. Some of the words are unique to that profession or trade or group, but others can be common words, but they take on a different meaning. My family owned an automotive repair shop when I was growing up. If my dad told me to take the rotors to be turned, I knew what he was talking about. If my brother diagnosed an engine and said it was dieseling, I knew what he meant. Somebody asked me in between services if I really knew what that meant, and I did. Uh, I don't know why it does that, but I, I know what it is. Hanging around cops as a chaplain, I hear a lot of jargon. Your FTO may want you to FI a suspect to be certain they're not 5150, for example. God bless you. (laughs) Wherever you work, there's probably jargon that you take for granted. And you can sometimes have fun with this. I know when I was a kid, maybe 11 or 12 years old, my family was building a house and they were at the framing stage. And one of my brothers uh, called me over and he showed me that the two by four was only an inch and a half by uh, three and a half inches. And, And I was startled by that. And so he asked me to go to the shed and get the board stretcher. And I looked, and I don't know how long I looked for that till I finally found it. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) we have our own jargon as believers called by some Christianese. We might, for example, say that someone came forward and had hands laid on them to receive the anointing. That might make sense to you, but it's still kind of crazy. It sounds weird if you're not familiar with it. Shepherding is a common occupation in the Bible. It has its own unique jargon. For example, there's an expression, to pass under the rod. The rod of the shepherd was about a two-foot-long club that doubled as an instrument by which the shepherd could count and inspect the sheep one by one as they passed by him. At the end of Matthew 25, we're going to read the famous passage where Jesus says that at his return, he will separate Gentiles as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. In shepherding jargon, they will pass under his rod. So will the Jews who survived the tribulation. While there is no direct mention of it in Matthew 25, Jews understood from their scriptures that one day day they too would pass under the rod of their great shepherd. They knew this passage in Ezekiel 20, which reads, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, 
I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face. Just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will plead my case with you, says the Lord. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Talking about bringing Israel into the kingdom of heaven on earth in the final days uh, after the great tribulation. I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, before you reign with Jesus in his kingdom, Israel will pass under the rod. And number two, before you reign with Jesus in his kingdom, the Gentiles will pass under his rod. Let's take a look at Israel first in verses one through 30. But you might have noticed I snuck something in on you. Who said anything about reigning with Jesus? Well, it's our teaching that the church age saints, like you and I, everyone from the day of Pentecost forward, will be resurrected and raptured to heaven before the tribulation on the earth can begin. In Revelation chapter five, verses nine and 10, describing the raptured church in heaven, we read this, it says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. The church is in heaven in Revelation chapter five. The tribulation is described in Revelation chapter six through 18. Then in chapter 19, Jesus returns and the church returns with him. When Jesus returns in his second coming, he establishes a real physical kingdom on the earth administrated from Jerusalem. It will last 1,000 years, which is why it is sometimes called the millennial kingdom. The Latin is millianum or a thousand years. So the kingdom of heaven on earth is also the millennial kingdom. It is the kingdom that was promised to Israel throughout their scriptures, but postponed when the leaders of Israel officially rejected Jesus as their king. I don't know exactly what we will be doing when we reign on earth with Jesus in that kingdom. I have a few of my own ideas about where I'd like to be posted, but I'm not sure if Disneyland will survive the great tribulation and be rebuilt. Um, so my second choice is a non-Starbucks coffee shop. But anyway, something to keep, I have very, yeah, small ambition. Something to keep in mind, uh, something that often confuses folks when we talk about the coming of the kingdom on the earth. When Jesus returns at the end of the great tribulation, there are human beings who have survived the terror and carnage of those days. There will be Jews and Gentiles on the earth at his second coming. These verses we're about to read are about those future people. Those among them who believe in Jesus Christ will remain on the earth in their human bodies and begin to repopulate it they are compared to sheep. Those among them who do not believe in Jesus Christ will be taken away to await eternal punishment. They are described as goats. And by the way, while we're talking about this, this is one reason why a post-tribulation rapture of the church is impossible. There are different positions on when the church is raptured. We are pre-tribulation. Before any portion of the tribulation, the church will be raptured. We believe that because the Bible teaches the rapture is an imminent event. It can happen at any moment. If it has to wait for any part of the tribulation, then it's not imminent. If the rapture is going to occur 
pre-wrath, some people say, meaning before the end of the tribulation or mid-tribulation. Any of those positions mean that it has to, it can't start until the tribulation starts. And so we would not be looking for the coming of Jesus at all. And so we're pre-trib because the Bible says that it's an imminent event. There are those who believe that the rapture is at the end of the tribulation. As Jesus returns, the church is resurrected and raptured, and then we return with him to rule and reign. The problem with that position, if you think about it for just a second, there will be no one on the earth left to rule and reign. Because if all the non-believers are taken away to judgment as goats, and all the sheep have been raptured, there are no living human beings to repopulate the, uh, the kingdom. So the post-tribulation rapture, to me, is untenable. So some of your friends may hold that. They can still be your friends, but they're wrong. <laughs> Verse one, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Do you remember the 90s sitcom with puppets called Dinosaurs? How many of you remember that? It was a favorite of mine. The baby used to say to the dad, not the mama and it used to drive him crazy. As we encounter the 10 virgins, I wanna say, not the bride. The 10 virgins are at best bridesmaids. They're probably more like invited guests. They are not the bride of Christ. Other than a general biblical principle here to always be ready, these virgins have nothing to do with the church. They are not the church, they have nothing to do with the church. The scene Jesus was describing is his second coming, not the rapture. The church is raptured and safe in heaven at least seven years before this second coming. Once you understand that, the interpretation of the parable itself is relatively straightforward. Now, five of them were wise, verse two, and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now, the wedding ceremony would take place at the home of the bridegroom. The 10 unmarried young female friends of either the bride or the bridegroom are waiting the return of the wedding party so they can attend the wedding feast. The custom was to have oil lamps on poles by which the invited guests could illuminate the procession. The lamps themselves did not hold much oil, so it was wise to have an extra supply. Verse five, while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. They weren't ready. In the story, they're told to try to wake up a shop owner and buy some oil, but the point was simply, it was really too late for them to get any oil. While they went to buy, verse 10, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now, from the standpoint of a wedding feast, that last statement seems pretty harsh. However, Jesus wasn't teaching you first century wedding etiquette. This is a story to illustrate a single, simple spiritual truth, and that truth is verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, we saw in chapter 24 that this phrase is not referring to the rapture of the church. It refers to the second coming of Jesus for various reasons we gave. 
we gave three of them, it will be impossible to know the exact moment of the Lord's second coming at the end of the great tribulation. When he comes, it will be too late for a person to change their eternal destiny. Those who were ready, believers who have been anticipating his return, will enter the kingdom. They are represented by the five wise virgins. Those who are not ready, these are non-believers, will be excluded from that kingdom. These are represented in the story by the five foolish virgins. And a, a Jew would hear this and say, no one would be foolish enough to be waiting for a wedding party and not have oil. Uh, and, and so the idea is, Jesus is saying, then don't be fooled that I'm not coming back or to leave your place of safety or something like that. I'm coming, just as I said, be ready. Now, Jesus started with a parable about a wedding feast because he will be returning with us, his bride, and there will be a celebration on the earth. Revelation 19.9 calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the symbolism of the Jewish wedding, when the church is resurrected and raptured and taken to heaven, there is a marriage ceremony, a wedding ceremony, and then when we return with the Lord in his second coming, there is a uh, uh, feast on the earth, a marriage feast, or we would call it a uh, a marriage dinner. His next parable gets down to business because the kingdom of heaven on the earth will also be a time of growth and prosperity, and the Lord will install servants of his in positions of oversight and authority. So verse 14, it says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Now, this was pretty common stuff in their culture. Notice in passing that the Lord did not divide his goods evenly. Just hold on to that thought for a moment. Verse 16, then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents saying, Lord, you have delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. And look, here is what you have is yours. Now, we're going to talk about faithfulness in a moment as an application, but that's not the real point of this parable. When reading the parables, it's important not to get bogged down in details of the story. Details are there often so that the story makes sense, so that it flows. The main point is what counts in reading a parable. The main single simple point of the parable of the talents is that the servants needed to believe the master was returning and they would live according to their belief. Two servants believed their Lord was returning. One either did not or hoped he would not. 
And so it says in verse 26, his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy servant, you knew I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Uh, This isn't an admission that their Lord was really like this. It's clear that he wasn't. He was simply repeating back what the servant had said. And in fact, by doing so, he was showing how foolish an assessment it was. You do this with your children sometimes when they're young. They say something and you repeat back what they said to show them that, hey, I don't agree with that. Uh, and, and that it's foolish. Then they get spanked. Verse 27. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Now, don't miss this. This servant was not afraid. He was shrewd. Why not put the money in the bank to earn interest, or at least to be kept safe? Your money's not all that safe, hidden because it might be found. We were watching the boys for a couple of days for Gene and Kelly, and we realized that little Gene squirrels away things all over our house now. And Zeke stumbled upon a candy pumpkin, and it was like toddler Armageddon at our house. We, we, I finally ate it. But anyway, no, that's not true. Why not do that? Because if the money is in the bank, there's a record of it. If the master never returned, the third servant could, in fact, simply keep the portion that had been given to him since it was buried in his backyard, and he could say, I don't know what happened to it. It's just gone. He either didn't think his master would return, or he was hoping that he wouldn't, and he acted accordingly. Verse 28, so take the talent from him, give it to him who has 10. Everyone who has, more will be given. He will have abundance, but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant to the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At his second coming, Jesus will appoint servants to oversee and administrate the kingdom. Those who are like the first two servants, anticipating the return of the king, will enter the kingdom of heaven on earth, and they will be rewarded with positions of service. Those who are like the third servant, certain that the king is not going to return, not looking for him, we would call them unbelievers, will be excluded from the kingdom. Now, why do we think these parables are directed to the nation of Israel? Well, for one thing, there's the passage from Ezekiel I referenced earlier. Jesus was describing his second coming, and the Jews must at some point at their Lord's second coming pass under the rod. Another reason we think these parables are for Israel are their Jewish tone. For example, Gentiles had completely different wedding customs than the ones taken for granted in the parable of the ten virgins. It's not a parable Gentiles could easily identify with. And a final reason we think Jesus has Israel in mind in these these verses is because he will make a sharp distinction in the remaining verses between Gentiles and those he calls my brethren, referring to the Jews ethnically. Now, before we go on, there is an application, a timeless application that we can make to believers at all times. God rewards you for faithfulness. It's something you can be faithful no matter what you've been given to work with. All men might be created equal, but we certainly do not all have the same talents or abilities or opportunities to serve the Lord, and it's just silly to think that we do. There are five talent Christians, two talent Christians, and one talent Christians in terms of God's distribution of Christians on the earth, 
uh, of resources and abilities, those kinds of things. The Lord commended the two-talent servant for his faithfulness exactly the same way he commended the five-talent servant. And you understand that if the one-talent guy had made one more talent, he would have commended him the same way too. And it's a timeless teaching that we need only be faithful with what God has given us to do. In more layman's terms, you don't have to be Billy Graham to be rewarded by God. He's going to say to Billy Graham, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. And he will say to every faithful Christian, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of of my Lord. Now, this is actually very liberating. Nothing is more freeing than to realize God rewards faithfulness because it's something all of us can do, and it gets our eyes off of others and onto the work at hand. God, you haven't called me to pastor that church or that church or, or that church, thank goodness, uh, but, you know, so, or to be here or there or somewhere else. So let me just do what you've given me to do. It's very freeing. And so be faithful. It's something we can all do and be. Now, before you reign with Jesus in his kingdom, the Gentiles will pass under his rod. The judgment that's described in the remaining verses is not a parable. It is a true description of Jesus separating out non-believers for eternal punishment, and he uses the imagery of a sheep passing under the rod of the shepherd. And so verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set up the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. At his return, the Lord will turn his attention to the nations. It's a word which is mostly used to distinguish non-Jews from Jews. Not always, but most of the time. We believe it definitely has that usage here because in verse 40, Jesus contrasts these nations with those he calls my brethren. And so the whole judgment has to do with what the nations did to his brethren. And by his brethren, he means the Jews. It's said of Jesus in the Gospel of John, he came to his own and his own received him not, meaning he was a Jew who came to the Jews offering the kingdom of God. They didn't receive him, and so the gospel went out from that to the Gentile world. And so these verses are definitely about Gentiles. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, the believers, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Jews will be the special target of satanic persecution during the last three and a half years of the great tribulation. We learn that in Matthew 24. We see it in the book of the Revelation. Those who escape to the Judean wilderness when the Antichrist defiles the temple will be supernaturally protected. Presumably, there will be Jews all around the world who will lack that supernatural protection. 
They will be hungry or thirsty or naked or sick or imprisoned. To help them will give evidence that a person is a genuine believer since you risk being similarly treated. A person can't be saved by doing these good works, but the works will be evidence that they are saved, that they are a tribulation saint. And I love the way Jesus identifies with his brethren. He says, feed them, clothe them, visit them, and you're doing it to me. Then in verse 41, he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. This is them passing under the rod to be identified as goats. Jesus reveals their treatment of the Jews, his brethren, desperate for the bare necessities of life and for human kindnesses. Sure, it will potentially mean imprisonment or death if a person were to help the Jews in the tribulation, but it means eternal punishment to not help them. Again, this, it isn't the lack of works that condemns, but the lack of genuine faith in Jesus that would produce those works. In any dispensation, Old Testament, New Testament, the tribulation, or the kingdom of heaven on earth, a person is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. At the cross, you receive the forgiveness of your sins, and God gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There, is, there are not many ways of salvation in the Bible. There is just one, two fingers, one. Well, I was meaning one, but making a point, air quotes. Uh, anyway, there's only one. By grace are you saved through faith. It's not of works that any man should boast. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute. He seems to be judging them according to their works. No, he's judging them according to their faith. They're either believers or non-believers, but your belief is put to the test because you have to help God's people, and you will. You'll run the risk because you're a Christian. It's put to the test. You should help God's people, but because you're not a believer, you don't want to touch them with a 10-foot pole. And so that's what's being said here. Verse 46, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. After this, only saved Jews and only saved Gentiles are left standing on the earth as tribulation survivors having passed under the rod of Jesus Christ. They will be the citizens of the millennial kingdom repopulating the planet for the next 1,000 years. We will be there with the Lord in that second coming. We will rule and reign with him. Others will also rule and reign from the nation of Israel and tribulation saints and all. We're not the exclusive ruling, reigning group. Uh, but you understand that there have to be living human beings who survive the great tribulation in order for the kingdom to work. Now, even though these verses look to the future, they obviously reveal the Lord as compassionate. He cares for those who are persecuted, and so should we if we have his heart at all. It's always a good spiritual exercise to analyze what we're doing to assist the poor and the persecuted church worldwide. I know people always say, hey, we have needs right here at home. Let's meet those too and not forget the persecuted church 
those that are sick and in prison and hungry and all. And, and let's, let's rise up to do what we can to help all those in the household of God, wherever they live, uh, as God would lead, uh, and then others outside of that as well. Amen?